Welcome to Avian Bone Syndrome Podcast, Episode 3, Privacy Today. Welcome again to the third episode of Avian Bone Syndrome Podcast. This episode is going to be about privacy today. The today part is really important because privacy has changed a lot in the last few years. But before we get into the details, we have to decide what privacy is. What kind of information is to be considered private? For instance, is my shoe size private information? Is my home address private information? I think we all agree it depends on the context. For instance, if I'm ordering from a website, my home address is something I have to give them in order to receive my package. Conversely, if I'm complaining about a politician, I may not want to expose my full name for fear of retaliation. Maybe not so much in Western democracies, but you can imagine many places where just saying that you have something against someone in power may put your life at risk, literally. Now, there is one thing called Personally Identifiable Information, PII for short, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology has defined this kind of information as personally identifiable, such as the full name if it's not common, the home address, the email address, the national identification number, the IP address, the vehicle registration plate number, the driver's license number, the face, the fingerprints or the handwriting of a given person, credit card numbers, digital identity, date of birth, birthplace, genetic information, telephone number, and login name, screen name, nickname, or handle. And in addition to this, there is other information that can be used to identify someone, though it's not as common because they're just broader in range, such as the full name, if it's common, the country, the state, or city of residence, the age, the gender or race, the name of school, grades, salary, job position, or criminal record. Now, all of this can lead to identify a given person. And the reason for this difference is is that a common name is going to be applied to more people. If your name is John Smith, you're going to be one of many John Smiths. But if your name is uncommon, then it may be easier to, to just pinpoint you. I used to talk with someone whose middle name was Gordon. And this may not sound like a big deal, but in Italy, if your middle name is Gordon, that's pretty narrow. It's just going to be you. In fact, if anyone is listening to this and they know of someone whose middle name is Gordon in Italy, that's actually quite likely it's the same person that I'm talking about. And the concept of privacy is also very subjective. Some people may be more willing to give out personal information, such as the phone number, compared to other people. And speaking of phone numbers, when I was a kid, I remember I had a neighbor who had just bought an answering machine. This was in the early 90s. And she wanted a kid to record the welcome message. For whatever reason, she just wanted people who called to listen to a kid. I have no idea why, but of course, I was enlisted to do that. And I clearly remember that she said, don't say the number. So the message I recorded went something like, Nobody's available at the number you have just called. Please leave a message. And even as a kid, that didn't make sense to me. I told her, people who call you already know your number. So why not just repeat it to make sure that they got the right one? And she said, 
That's precisely the point. If someone misdials the number, I don't want them to know the number they called. And keep in mind, this was the early 90s, so you didn't have cell phones, you didn't have phones with displays, really, unless you paid a lot for them. So most people just blindly dialed numbers on the keypads. And that's just a very small story, but it gives you an idea of how people perceive and always have perceived privacy differently. Now, of course, our information is valuable, and companies have always tried to collect as much information about us as they can, because it's what drives their marketing. Now, a couple of decades ago, when you went to a supermarket in Italy, I don't know if this applies to any other place, but it was very common here. Every time you paid, you would be given these stickers that you could stick on this sheet of paper. And at the end, when you completed it, when you had collected all the points you needed to collect, you would be given a prize. And of course, it was a way to build customer loyalty. And the amount of stickers you would get, bolini as they were called, depended on how much you spent. So for instance, if you spent 50,000 lire, you would get five of them, one every 10,000. Or to make it easier to understand in today's money, you would get like one every 10 euros or 10 dollars or 10 pounds. Now this only served to build customer loyalty, nothing else, because there was no sign-up involved. You just got your points, you collected them, and when you reached the number of points you needed, it was exchanged for a price. In some cases, you gave your name and address at the end, but in other cases, you only needed to just present the collection and get the price back. And one thing that happened, precisely because these points were not linked to anyone, they were not personal, was that some sort of black market emerged. So if I used to go to supermarket A, but happened to be shopping at supermarket B, and I knew that my friend used to go to supermarket B, I would just give him my points. And of course, it didn't really change much. The companies did not object to it because these points were not personal. Um, as long as you just spend money, their goal was just convincing people to go back to the same supermarket or to the same chain, at least, instead of going somewhere else. And you did go to the same supermarket just because of the points at some point. No pun intended. <laughs> and sometimes, specifically because all of this was just a way to keep people going back, they would just change the amount of money needed for a single point. So if you used to get one every 10 euros, during the next campaign, you would get one every five. And of course, the amount of points you needed for specific prizes also doubled at the same time. So at the end of the day, you still had to spend the same amount of money to get the same prizes. But it helped get an idea of reward. And this goes hand in hand with the whole psychological pricing, such as getting something for 24.90 euros instead of 25. It sounds silly, and we know why they're doing that, but we still fall prey to that. What most people don't realize is that it actually piles up. If I'm buying two things that are priced at $24.99, I'm actually paying almost $50. But my brain sees that as $24 instead of $24.99. And when I go and pay with a 50 euro bill, instead of expecting 2 euros back in change, I'm actually given 2 cents back. And that's quite a difference. But as technology improved, the whole idea of customer loyalty also changed. Now, again, at least in Italy, if you want to collect points, you have to sign up beforehand. And you have to tell them who you are, where you live. You have to give them all your information. And you're issued a card. It looks just like a credit card with a barcode or a magnetic strip, doesn't matter, that's linked to you, specifically to you. So they already know who you are. And every time you go, you give that to the cashier and they scan it and all the points get automatically added to it. 
it's very convenient, much more convenient than being given a bunch of small stickers that you eventually lost, that you couldn't find, that you had to waste time sticking onto this collection sheet. It was just very messy. So when we moved to plastic, everything became peachy again. It's very important that the card is scanned every single time because you have to get your points. That's why you do it. But in exchange for your points, they get to know exactly what you bought. And not only that, since they know who you are, they know everything about you. Think about it. Not only they know exactly what you've bought, but they also know what supermarket within the chain you went to, what time you went, on what day. They even know what cash register you went through. And as you keep doing that, and you keep going in order to collect more points because now you cannot even exchange them with your friends. You have to go there with your card and it has to be scanned every single time. As you keep going, they'll just build a profile about you. They will know how often you go. They will know what time you usually go to the supermarket. They will know what things you buy and how often. And with that kind of data, everyone can derive pretty specific information about that person. If you constantly buy diapers, it's very likely you have a little kid at home. If you consistently buy beer, it's very likely that you may like wine. If you consistently buy razor blades, it's very likely you're a man or there is a man in your family. So every time you do this, you're effectively letting them know more about you. And that's why every single supermarket now has their own platform, their own campaign for this. Sometimes they don't even give you prices anymore. Sometimes they just give you discounts on specific products, which also lets them know whether people want to buy them or whether they would have bought them if they had not been discounted by comparing the before and after. You're effectively giving them so much data about you that they can get any sort of information out of it just by looking through it. We have gotten so used to this kind of thing that today we don't even complain if the price requires a contribution, as they call it here. Whereas before you only had to spend so much money to get so many points, now you often also have to give additional cash in addition to the points to get your prize. But we don't mind, we keep going. We keep doing this and we keep giving them more information about us. And of course they're very happy. Now, you may be wondering, what about credit cards? Everyone's concerned about credit cards. There are so many horror stories of websites leaking credit card information, hackers getting access to credit cards information. Well, credit cards are actually safer from this point of view because it is true that every single time you make a transaction with your credit card, you're letting your issuer, that is usually your bank, you're letting them know how much you spent, where you spent it, and when you spent it. But that's all they get. They only get the amounts and the shops and the location if it's a physical place, nothing else. So they may know that yesterday morning I spent 300 euros at a musical instrument shop, but they don't know if I bought a guitar, a drum set, or I don't know, 15 ukuleles. Now this doesn't mean that using credit cards is necessarily safe. Even though online it's actually safer because you're not leaking the location, you're just saying, okay, I spent this much money on this website and that's it. Whereas if I go to a specific place, I will have left a track of where I went and where I spent that money. So effectively, if you use credit cards exclusively, it's perfectly possible to track your steps on a map, more or less. But generally speaking, online usage of credit cards is actually safer unless the websites are not protected. 
But of course, the whole idea of privacy is much broader than just what we buy and where we buy it and how much we spend. Nowadays, social media is where all the information is. And the internet is a wonderful thing. It's come a long way. I've been online since 1996, that's almost 20 years. And I've seen it change. I remember when the best search engine was Alta Vista, because Google didn't even exist at the time. Bing was ages away from becoming real. You had Yahoo, but Yahoo at the time was more of a directory than a search engine, because the web was so small that you could actually index it. And of course now everything's changed. We have Google with all its wonderful services. We have free worldwide maps. We have Gmail. When Gmail came out in 2004, I think, it was unbelievable. It gave everyone one gigabyte worth of space. Whereas other mail providers only gave you 10 megabytes at most. One gig seemed completely impossible at the time. We have Facebook. Facebook has so many users, so many active users at the same time. It's unbelievable how many people use it. Now, we may only have a few hundred friends in our friends list. Some people have a few thousands. Most people average around a couple of hundreds, I think. Well, we only see those 200, 300 people. But there are so many who have 300 people on their friends list. The interactions are huge. They have huge data centers just for that. And everyone is loading status messages, pictures, videos, playing games on Facebook. There's so much data moving back and forth that it's almost unimaginable. There is Twitter. Despite being limited to 140 characters and despite having a smaller user base, Twitter has become the de facto standard in real-time information. If you are in the middle of some historic event, you will probably end up posting on Twitter rather than Facebook. During the protests in Egypt a couple of years ago, Twitter was the place where you would go to get fresh first-hand information about that. And that's also a lot of data that's being moved back and forth. As I was mentioning, Google's satellite data, that alone is incredibly big. Think about it, you can see every single spot on the planet, both as a map and as pictures. That's literally a whole world of information right there at your fingertips. And what is the thing that's in common with all these things? Think about it. The price tag. Everything is free. You get Gmail for free. You get Outlook Mail for free. You get Yahoo Mail for free. Yahoo has recently upgraded Flickr, its photo sharing service, to offer one terabyte of data for free for everyone. One terabyte is exactly 1,024 times the gigabyte that Google offered for its mail in 2004. That's really a lot of space. And all the space has costs. If we want to look at this in a completely irrational way, we may assume that Yahoo has bought a one terabyte hard drive for every single user, which costs around $50, more or less. But when you make the calculation with all the people who are using the service, that's not feasible. Of course, they're overselling. They're always overselling. They do count on the fact that not everyone will use up one terabyte of space. But still, they have to provision for that. So maybe they don't have one terabyte for everyone. They maybe have one terabyte for 20% of the users. That's still a lot of space. That's still a lot of expenses to run. Facebook, as we have seen, 
It's a completely unimaginable amount of data that moves and that needs to be stored. The question is, who pays for that? You're not. Everything is free for you. Someone else must be paying for it. And clearly, Google, Facebook, Yahoo, Twitter, all of these, they're not charities. They're corporations. They're in business. They are supposed to make money. Someone else must be paying. And usually, that's the advertisers which means that you're not really the user, you are the product. Think about that. All your personal data is being traded by these companies with other companies. That's exactly what's happening. And that's what's paying for your free social network, free email, free satellite maps, free everything. When Gmail came about a little over a decade ago, a lot of people were taken aback by something that Google had done, which was putting contextual ads in your inbox. What this means is that if you get an email from a friend about a trip to Spain, you may get ads about trips to Spain. Of course, how do they do this? They read your email. They've always promised it's not being done by any human, that no single person has access to private information. It's up to you whether you want to believe that or not. The fact is, your email is being read. It may be a computer that just automatically plays the matchmaker and finds the right ad for the right email. But still, something is reading your messages. And this is only a promise that you have to believe, because the email, I can tell you for a fact, is not encrypted. It cannot be encrypted if it needs to be analyzed in order to show the proper ads, or even if it's encrypted, then the key needs to be known which means that effectively it's just as insecure as not being encrypted. But this is just the tip of the iceberg, and it's not only Google, mind you. This also applies to Outlook, to Yahoo, to any other email service provider, really. But Google, of course, is the mastermind of the web. It's given us so many free products that at this point you may be wondering, how much more do they know? Does it get any creepier? Well, yeah, it does. Every time you search for anything on Google, your query is not used, processed, and dismissed. It's kept for a long time, and not only the query itself is kept, also the information about what result you clicked on, how long it took you to get to that result, if you open two pages from the same result in two different tabs. And all this information is used to trace a profile of you even if you've never used a Gmail account or a YouTube account, even if you don't even have a Google account at all. Because as you keep making more and more queries, all of these are recorded and analyzed. And it's unbelievable the kind of information that's recorded and how scarily accurate your profile is. There is actually a page you can go that tells you what Google knows about you. And of course, if you have a YouTube account, a Gmail account, any account for any Google service, we've actually given them more information about you. You've told them what your name is, you've told them where you live, where you were born, when you were born. But you don't even have to use Google to be tracked by Google. And this is where it gets really creepy that most people don't realize. Google provides a very useful service for webmasters called Google Analytics. Google Analytics gives an incredible amount of detail about the people who visit your website. So in a sense, they're giving back the information they have after curing them and making them not dangerous. 
If I use that on my website, I don't know what your name is when you visit it. I know where you're from, how much time you spend on every single page of my site. That allows me to track campaigns so I can see where you've come from, at what time you visit my site, if you are a returning user, and so on. That's very valuable, especially for marketing purposes. And how do they get that kind of information from my site? Well, we have to talk a little bit about cookies. You may have heard about cookies, especially if you're in Europe, because a few years ago, the European Union passed a law about having to notify every single user that your website may be using cookies. Now, cookies are nothing dangerous. A lot of people are scared about them. A lot of people don't know what they're about. A cookie is just a very simple and very small text file. It's kept in your very browser. In fact, you can delete them. You can see what your browser's cookies are. You can delete them individually. You can clear them all. You can do whatever you want with them. Why are they used? They're used to record information on your computer that the website, the only website that set them, can read back. Every time you make a request to a web server, and by request, I don't just mean the web page itself, but also every single file that's referenced within the web page. That can be the style sheet, any scripts, any single image, and any other data that's there, really. The server can return the resource that you asked for, and also ask your browser to record a cookie. A cookie usually just consists of a key and a value, such as username John, an expiration date, after which the browser will automatically delete the cookie, and if it's not set, the cookie will only last until the end of the session. That is, until you close your browser, and when you close it, it's gone. And it also contains an origin. The origin is the web server that set the cookie. It cannot be changed, but it can be actually made more specific so it can only be read by a specific subdirectory of that web server. So it's actually a good thing to have it. But by default, a web server that sets a cookie can also read it back. And this is exactly what we're doing here. Now, in order for a webmaster to be able to use Google Analytics, they have to paste a specific piece of code that Google generates for them. And that needs to be pasted in every single page of the website that needs to be tracked. All of this will make so that every single request to that web page will also load a resource on Google's own servers. So Google gets a track of the connection and is also able to set a cookie on your computer. Now, the first time you open a website that uses Google Analytics on a fresh and installed browser, Google will set a unique ID and save it in your browser with a cookie. Every time you open any other website that uses Google Analytics, whether it's by another webmaster in another country, it doesn't matter, as long as it runs Google Analytics. Google, since the request will go to the same server, will be able to read back the cookie and see that you visited site A 10 minutes ago and now you're on site B. And as you keep browsing, every single time you visit any site that uses Google Analytics, your profile grows. And I can tell you that pretty much every single website uses Google Analytics because the service that it provides is really good. So in essence, Google can track you even if you've never used Google. And if you happen to log in, the moment you log in to any Google service, such as YouTube, well, all the data gets dumped into your real account. So Google gets an even better picture at that point of view. And that's precisely why you get very targeted advertising you may have wondered, how do they know that I'm interested in this piece of furniture that I've been looking at three times on IKEA's website? Well, 
because you keep going and Google has recorded that you keep going to this so its algorithms assume that maybe you're really interested in this. I have been getting consistent ads for a website from which I bought my camera a month ago because I kept going there and Google has learned that I'm really interested in the shop. And the creepy thing is that it's following me. I've never opened a website on my phone, but since I use YouTube on both my phone and the computer, these ads are actually following me when I visit regular websites on my phone because Google knows that it's the same person. If I'm interested in cameras on the computer, I'm also interested in cameras on the phone. If you use Google Now on your Android phone, you may have noticed cards about topics that you have visited on your home computer. Not even searches necessarily, just topics. But Google is only one of the players here. Of course, the big elephant in the room is Facebook. Facebook has been getting into advertising, but it's chosen quite a different path. The main difference is that Facebook knows even more about us than Google does because we tell Facebook who we are, what we like, what we do, where we've been. Every single time we use Facebook Messenger on our phone, we are telling Facebook, I am here. I'm in this specific spot on the whole planet. Every time you upload a picture that you've taken with your phone, we're also telling Facebook, I took this photo on this day at this time in this place. Every time you post a status message, you're telling Facebook, I'm here. Even if you disable the geolocation, you're still telling them, I'm here. And every single time you browse Facebook from your phone especially, you're telling them, I'm right here. And I'm just being passive, I'm just browsing around. And of course, it's also tracking what you do on Facebook, which is why you tend to see more pictures, more status messages, more updates from the people you usually interact with, as opposed to those who you barely talk with, whether in public or in private. And in a sense, Facebook wants to know more. And it even asks your friends to ask you to tell them more. If you go to the profile page of someone who has never typed in their school, there is a little button that says, ask. And if I click that, you will get a message saying, hey, this guy would like to know where you went to school. And of course, I barely care, but they do care. Because by knowing where you went to school, they'll be able to get a better idea of your interests. They'll get an idea of who your connections may be. And that's how it suggests you friends. If you've gone to the same school at the same time as someone else, it's possible you may know them. And Facebook also provides a service similar to analytics. Not in that it provides insights like analytics does, but it provides login functions for websites, commenting for websites, and it's very easy to use. You just take a little piece of code, you paste it in your website, and boom, you get comments. Everyone can comment by logging in with Facebook. You may have noticed that oftentimes when you go to web pages, random web pages, you will see the Facebook like button. Well, that works exactly like Google's analytics code. The moment you see the like button, your browser has already made a request to Facebook's own server, which knows that you, and they know you by name because you've told them your name, are visiting this page. And that's why sometimes you will get ads on Facebook that are not provided by Google, but that are incredibly specific. That's because they know you've been looking at that stuff. So they know that you may be interested in similar stuff or just that very stuff specifically. And again, you're not paying for any of this other than just by giving away your privacy. 
And this is actually changing the way we perceive the internet. It's not just a matter of losing privacy, so to speak. We are literally seeing different things depending on who we are. It's very likely that if I look for Python on Google, I will be getting information about the programming language because Google knows that I'm a developer. But someone else who's interested in the natural world may be getting information about the snake. So this leads to the question, is this legal? Is this acceptable? Well, legally speaking, yes it is. Because the moment you sign up to something, you're effectively agreeing to this. So you cannot complain about it. And plus, in return, we do get all these great services that are effectively free. Well, free if you're okay with paying with your very self, but we all do. And I think we do like giving them this information because precisely of that. And there is no point in using fake names or anything like that. The moment your real name appears somewhere, it's going to be linked to you. There's no escaping this. There's really no way to escape this other than not to use social media at all. But actually, as I said, that would mean not using the internet at all. Because the moment you browse any website, you will be tracked by Google, you will be tracked by Facebook, you will be tracked by Twitter. Every single time you see all these buttons on a website, Facebook's like, Twitter's follow, Pinterest's pin, I think it's called, Google plus, plus one. Well, every single time you see that, you're being tracked. And the moment you see the button, it's already too late. Because in order to show you the button, you have made a request to the server that it's coming from. But as I said, we do like sharing that information. And I think that's because the world has become so much smaller that we are kind of feeling compelled to show that we exist. And this is especially true of younger generations. Now, I'm old enough to have an idea of privacy that probably the current young generation does not share. For them, it's perfectly normal to take photos of themselves all the time and post that on Instagram. It's perfectly normal to post on Twitter or wherever they are, or on Foursquare. There are so many social networks, it's unbelievable. And they don't see any risk in doing that because they're used to this. They don't see it as something that's changed compared to what it was before. For them, it's always been like this. So they really see no problem in doing this. But it's not just the younger generation, really, because there are people my age or even older who will just take out the phone whatever happens. It's an instinct to save the moment in order to share it. Because we don't just take photos, we share them. And I think that that's because the world has become smaller. In a sense, we feel that there is more competition precisely because of that. So we have to prove that, hey, we do exist. And that's why we do that. That's why we find ourselves posting the most stupid things on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and anywhere else. Stupid things like the mailman just left a package out in the rain. Stuff that back in the day, just a few years ago really, wouldn't have been posted anywhere. Just something that you would have complained maybe with your neighbor, with a post office. Now everyone in the world gets to know that your mailman has left a package out in the rain. Everyone gets to know that today you had pizza. Everyone gets to know that you're bored at work. The whole perception and expectation of privacy has changed. But that doesn't mean that we're going to be hurt by this. We just need to learn how to play the game. And when people come to me and ask me, what can be done about this? How can I prevent this from being a problem for me? How can I avoid being tracked? Well, you cannot avoid being tracked, but there's one thing you can do. And it is always assume that every single thing you post, whether it's private or public, always assume that it's public. 
And by public, I mean completely readable by every single person on the planet. Even if it's a private email, don't assume that it's private. Just don't. Because at some point, it may not be. And I'm not just talking about the NSA scandal or data leaks. I'm just saying that you just don't know what will happen. So the only thing that can prevent you from being embarrassed by something that you said is not saying it. The only thing that will prevent you from being embarrassed by a photo that you have shared with someone is not to share it. And it seems a little bit extreme, really, but it's not. Because when you think about it, you don't have control about all these things. Snapchat, for instance, was created with the promise and the premise that every single picture shared through the system would self-destroy as soon as the other person had seen it. Well, turns out it didn't really work like that. Because, again, there is no way to prevent that. Even if I design a system that prevents you from taking a screenshot, which incidentally Snapchat did not, it does alert the sender when the other person takes a screenshot, but that's just too late. But even if I don't use that, I can use another phone, I can use another camera to actually take a picture of the phone with the offending picture. So you're never safe. The only suggestion I have is simply don't post what you don't want your mother to find out about. If you abide to that very simple rule, you're going to be fine. And there is no reason to spread fear and uncertainty and doubt about all the social media. It's not bad. Social media, by very definition, is just a medium. It's a means of communication. It's not inherently good or bad. It can be used in both ways, just like a knife. You can use it to slice an apple or to kill someone. It's up to you. All you need to do and all you can do is do your best to stay safe. This concludes today's episode about privacy today. There's actually so much more I could say about this topic, but I didn't want to say too much simply because I probably freaked out a lot of people who listen to this. My point was just be aware of what's going on behind the scenes, because that's the only way you can protect yourself. Knowledge is the only weapon we have against all of this. So the more we know, the safer we are. As always, thank you for listening, thank you for sharing, and thank you for all the feedback you've given me. If you have anything you want to tell me, you can reach me on my website or you can find me on Twitter and Facebook. I will be back soon. And in the meantime, don't forget, stay human. The music used in this episode is Look Busy and Porch Swing Days by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com.